Well, yeah, we are at the culmination moment of really a couple of years of vision and prayer, and I think we've had something like 30 prayer meetings all over the city in like 25 different churches. Thousands of believers have gathered. Uh, we have, I think it's 250 pastors right now registered that are going to go to the top of Stone Mountain with several thousand millennials. They're going to walk up, and we're going to stand on top of Stone Mountain and uh, repent of historic racism and ask God to release revival. Beloved, this is a historic moment. It's an unbelievable moment. And uh, I'm just so grateful that the Lord has seen to it to just include us in what he's up to and what he's doing. You know, um, the Lord always has stuff he's doing, and sometimes the church doesn't even know what the Lord is doing. It's just the case. But do you know, God's going to get done what he wants to get done regardless of us. Now, things don't just happen inevitably. There's got to be human agreement, but he will keep moving and looking till he finds somebody who's willing. Isn't that right? And, uh, you know, that's the thing. He'll just use anybody with a yes in their heart. You know, you don't have to be special. You don't have to be, you know, superhuman. In fact, when we read the Bible, clearly there aren't any superhumans. There's, there's only one who's perfect. That's Jesus. And then there's the rest of us. And so God uh, has to use what he's got left. <laughs> People like you and me, who are just little old you and me, and we have our issues, but man, he's faithful, isn't he? He's faithful. Well, let's just pray one more time, and we'll get into the word this morning. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We set our hearts right now to hear from heaven. I ask that you'd open our eyes with the spirit of revelation, and that as we talk once again about cultural unity and reconciliation, you would unlock us even right now. You'd unlock our hearts. You'd let us see things we hadn't seen before. You'd let us consider things freshly. You'd open up the word of God that we would see clearly in a way we haven't seen before. So release the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you in this house right now. And Lord, I ask you, let me speak as an oracle of the word of God clearly and precisely Hold my hand as I share this morning. We give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. Okay, I want to start this morning, and I just want to share from John 13, Jesus' heart regarding unity. John 13, verse 34, here's what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I kind of like that sentence. That sentence is a sentence that you and I wouldn't say, (laughs) but Jesus adds the extra phrase at the end for double emphasis. He goes, love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. (laughs) By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I was thinking about this passage this morning, and oftentimes we'll take the issue of love, the the second commandment that we would 
love one another as, as the Father's loved us. And, and we kind of make it, um, well, of course, you know, we just put that in the category of, yeah, I already knew that, and I get it. Tell me something deep, you know. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about the connection that Jesus makes. He says, if you love one another, everyone will know you're my disciples. And he ties this issue of our love to one another with the world understanding who Jesus is and who his followers are. In other words, the defining issue should be the extravagant love of believers. That should be where, you know, anybody on the planet can look and they go, oh, 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 that must be a Christian because look how they love. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, it's interesting because, you know, in the, in the way that the Lord has woven together creation, he could have woven things together in any way. He could have made the human heart respond to anything. He, this passage, if the Lord would have created things a little differently and woven our hearts together a little differently, it could have said this. He could, he could have said, I want you to put power on display because if you'll put power on display, everybody will know you're my disciples. But it doesn't say that. It says, if you'll put love on display, then everybody will know you're my disciples. And it seems so elementary, but, uh, you know, I, I find this, that the teachings of Jesus, they, at, at the core, they're pretty simple, but they're not easy. Love, just love each other. You know, just love each other. Just love each other. Just, just lay yourself down for each other. Just, just show that you really prefer others more than yourself. Just show that you really want to give and bless others more than you care about yourself. Just show that other people are more important to you than you. Just do that, and everybody will know you're my disciples. And I just think about how simple of a thought that is, but how that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God transforming a human heart because in sin, we don't want to love anyone but ourselves. Isn't that right? Oh, I mean, when we are broken and in sin, all we care about is ourselves. And we coin little phrases, look out for number one. You know, and we think that that's like good theology or something. And, and occasionally you'll hear Christians and they'll, they'll quote things like that and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says look out for number one. I'm like, the Bible doesn't say look out for number one. Well, you know, it says cleanliness is next to godliness and no, no, it doesn't say that either. And there's a ton of mentalities that we tend to live by because it's culture, but it's not Christ. And what the Bible actually teaches is we are to love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. And I just want you to think it through now. Did Jesus give us some kind of halfway, half-baked kind of love? Did he stop short in loving? 
He went all the way, didn't he? He laid himself completely down. He left perfection, put on flesh, and found himself on a collision course with the cross at the expense of humans who hated him, and he still stretched out his arms and loved those that hated him, even us, namely us, and fully gave himself for us. Love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, when we're talking about this issue of racial unity and overcoming prejudice and bias and and all these things, stereotypes, the issue of love is at the core, beloved. It's at the bottom line of everything. Because love requires us to step outside of our preferences, to step outside of what we're used to, to step outside of our own culture, and to give, and to serve, and to bless, and to offer ourselves. And that's what love brings us to. And so with that in mind, I want to talk today about the intentionality that's required if we're gonna be a multicultural family. Woo, I'm not getting any amens off of that topic right there. This must be the right message. Sometimes people are like, yes, brother. Sometimes they're like, oh no, brother. Well, here I come anyway. Did you know that the New Testament, it addresses prejudice constantly. In fact, if I had, I mean, I I should probably do a course on this, but if I had about 15 hours, I could walk you through verse after verse after verse in the New Testament that is specifically focused on overcoming cultural prejudice. It's one of the main themes of the New Testament. Did you realize that? You kind of know it because you go, oh, right, Jew and Gentile, there was some kind of issue there. But we don't really recognize the depth of that issue. That separation between Jew and Gentile, you know, in the New Testament age at that time, that was a massive massive separation. There was massive enmity between Jews and Gentiles at that time. And so Jesus comes, he brings the, you know, the forgiveness of sins and then grace. And he, and he says, it's not just for Jews, it's actually for the Gentiles too, because the Messiah is a light to all the nations. And so in that package, the immediate issue becomes oh man, we've got to learn how to get along with people that aren't like us. We, we've got to figure out, like, I'm not even, I'm not even, I don't even know any Gentiles. I've never even been in a Gentile's house, and you're telling us that we've got to do life together? Beloved, that's the message of the New Testament. And when Jesus is saying this in John, he's fully aware of what's about to happen in first century 
Middle East. He, he knows exactly what's getting ready to happen in Asia Minor and in, in Israel is this, that there's going to be a bunch of Jews that are going to get born again, and then there's going to be a bunch of Gentiles that are going to get born again, and they're going to have to learn how to really love one another. And so I just want to walk us through for a few moments sometimes where in the New Testament prejudice is addressed. And, and then I want to bring us into this, really to the core issues of what injustice looks like, what unity looks like, and then I want to give us some steps to intentionality. I've got more to say than I have time to say it, so you better listen fast and pray that I can get this out. All right. Prejudice. This is just a couple examples of where prejudice is uh, addressed in the New Testament. John 4, you know this one. The story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Verse 9, John 4. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? I want to just make this point. Jesus knew that before she said it to him. And Jesus knew exactly where he was. In other words, he didn't just sort of like, I'm just out here preaching and I'm just kind of walking around and look, a well. Wow, I'm thirsty. Oh, there's a woman. Could you help me get some water? I mean, he wasn't like bumbling around and found himself in Samaria. He actually had to go completely out of his way to get there. In fact, Jews would ordinarily, when they were traversing, they would go around Samaria. And what Jesus had to do was he had to actually take a detour and go into Samaria on purpose. Because he knew if he went into Samaria, he would encounter some Samaritans. And I'll guarantee you, he wasn't doing it to try to get his own heart right. There were some guys that he traveled with a lot that he wanted to introduce to some Samaritans. He wanted to bring his disciples into this conflict. And I love what Jesus does. He doesn't sidestep it. He doesn't sort of like, you know, not talk around it. He actually goes right into the issue and intentionally addresses it. And here's what happens. When the disciples show up, they're like, oh, Jesus. And they're appalled because he's talking to a woman. That's not the main reason they were upset. They were upset because he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Because there was a bunch of women that Jesus talked to throughout his ministry, wasn't there? There was a woman caught in adultery in the very act, and he got down in the dirt. And you don't see the disciples over there going, wow, he's talking to an adulteress. No, they didn't raise an issue with any of the other women that Jesus talked to, but they did with this one. They were shocked that he was talking to a Samaritan. And this is how Jesus addresses this issue of separation across cultures in the New Testament, is he always goes right at it. 
He doesn't allow there to be pink elephants in the room. He calls out the pink elephants and he says, look, you see that? We have got to deal with that issue. So what he's doing here by going into Samaria is he's calling his disciples into an understanding that this is gonna be how we're gonna live. We're gonna love the Samaritans just like we love the Jews. I am preaching far better than your amen, but... It's all right. I got you. And, he, and so he's being intentional. Let's look at another example. Now, this is an interesting one because Jesus is now set to go to the cross. And so instead of, again, going around Samaria, he cuts through again. I just love Jesus. Don't you just love Jesus? Verse 51, Luke 9, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans go now, who are you trying to get a room for? With Jesus, the the Jewish prophet. And where is he going again? Well, he's going to Jerusalem, you know, for the feast. No. We don't have any rooms for Jews that are going to the feast. We don't do that. We don't rent our rooms to Jews. And then look at his disciples. They're about to put their prejudice on display. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? If you remember, boys, Elijah actually consumed a sacrifice on the altar with his fire. I mean, these guys are like, finally, we're going to get these Samaritans. Jesus is, I mean, I can almost just imagine Jesus going, guys, don't you remember the woman at the well? Don't you remember that whole interaction? Don't you remember that whole town got saved because we showed love and we were kind? You don't know what spirit you're of. What are you guys doing? He turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went and found another village. And here's the thing. And you just have to see this. It's just what I said a minute ago. God doesn't use any perfect people because there aren't any. And so what's going on is Jesus is setting up situations to cause the disciples to be exposed in their own prejudice and bias. And it happens over and over and over again. We're going to see it through the book of Acts in just a moment where it's, it's just shocking how this Jew-Gentile prejudice, it just continued to exist. All right, look at this next one. Galatians chapter 2. And what you have here is you have now Paul, and he is he's relating a story that happened at Antioch between he 
and Peter and Barnabas and several other of the Jewish leaders who were from Jerusalem. Let me just, let me just give you a little Bible study just for a second, just to remind. In Acts chapter 10, remember, Peter has an encounter with the Lord. Jeff preached on it a few weeks ago, and he has this a trance and this vision that happens to him in the trance where he sees all these unclean animals and the Lord tells him three different times, arise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord says to Peter, what I have cleansed, you don't call it unclean. Don't call any foods uncommon. And in the middle of this encounter, there's a knock at the door and it's these men that are sent from uh, Cornelius's house. And, and Cornelius is a Gentile. And, and Cornelius has had an angelic encounter. And, and he said, hey, send some guys and go get Simon, who's lodging at another guy named Simon's house. Go get that guy and bring him and listen to what he has to say. So in the moment that Peter, Simon Peter's having this encounter, the men come, Peter goes down and talks to these Gentiles, and it's, it is awkward because they, they don't even have Gentiles in their homes. And I can imagine Peter, and, and here's the other brothers, and they're looking at Peter like, Peter, who are you hanging out with lately, man? We don't do this. And Peter says, well, I, the Lord's speaking to me, so you guys stay overnight. I'm not sure which room he put him in, but stay overnight. And I'll go with you in the morning. And then Peter goes with him in the morning. And he begins to share the gospel at Cornelius' house. And while he's speaking, the Holy Ghost falls. I mean, that's a powerful preaching. Think about that now. As he's preaching the gospel, he doesn't do an altar call. He doesn't say, how many would like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> As he's preaching, bang, the power of the Holy Spirit falls. They all get filled with the Holy Spirit. They're getting converted and baptized in the Holy Spirit in one moment. It's powerful. The Gentile Pentecost happens, and it's fantastic. And so then what we find out is this, that the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem at that time causes many of the believers to scatter out of Jerusalem, and many of them go to different places, and a bunch of them end up in a place called Antioch. And what happens in Antioch is a shock, and you can read this, Acts 11. What happens in Antioch is this, revival breaks out, and none of the apostles are there. None of the apostles are there. It's all the believers carrying the word of the Lord who were scattered because of persecution. They end up in Antioch and a bunch of Gentiles are getting born again. And so the, the Jerusalem begins to hear about this outbreak that's going on in Antioch and, and they send Barnabas down. They go, hey, figure out what's going on. There's some kind of thing happening and they're saying there's revival in Antioch, but none of us are even there. Who's doing it? Regular old you and me were doing it. Which is why when you read the New Testament, there isn't this separation between clergy and laity. That's a lie of the devil. Let me tell you something. You've got the same Holy Ghost that I've got. You can move in the same power of the kingdom of God that I can, that anybody else can that loves Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, if we're going to have revival, it's not because the platform's going to get real anointed. It's because everybody's going to get in the game. We all get to play. Come on now. We all get to play. So 
Barnabas goes there. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's like, this is amazing. Now, Barnabas has been, he's been communicating, and, and, and he's talking to Paul a little bit, and, and they call Paul over and say, come over and check this out. And Paul comes over to Antioch, and it is blowing up. It is full-scale revival, and it's awesome. And so then Peter, we find out he ends up having to give an account for the, the thing that happened to him at Cornelius' house. Antioch is going on at the same time. And what's the Lord doing? He's invited the Gentiles into the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. If you're not from a Jewish heritage, that's where you get to say, thank you, Jesus, because the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And that's, that's basically all of us. So this thing is going for a while in Antioch. There's power breaking out. And what ends up happening is this. A couple of the brothers come down from Jerusalem, and they tell the brothers in Antioch, hey, you've got to make all these Gentiles, they've got to obey the law of Moses. And Paul goes, no, that's, I, that don't smell right. That's real wrong. Jesus fulfilled the law, and he became a sacrifice for us so that we're free to serve Jesus and it's his blood that we're under now, not the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Come on. And so what happens is this. Paul, so Paul has to go up to Jerusalem, and he's got to have a conversation with the, with the brothers up in Jerusalem. And Peter's there, and James is there. He's the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And, and they have to explain, hey, look, guys, we're not going to put a burden on them that we couldn't even carry. The law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. He gives them a couple guidelines. Hey, let's not do sexual immorality. Let's not drink blood anymore since <laughs> that's gross. <laughs> let's not eat <laughs> meat sacrifice to idols. Keep yourself from these things. It'll be well with you. Why? Because if you love, it fulfills the whole law, doesn't it? And it's even in that moment, this is Acts 15 now that I'm in, where Peter stands up and he says, the Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom by faith just like we are, okay? Now, Galatians 2, what happens? Peter's there, he's visiting Antioch. Paul's telling the story in a letter to the Galatian church, but this is what happened at Antioch. Peter's at Antioch, he's visiting, and man, they're having a barbecue, y'all. They got the pig on the spit, <laughs> eating some ribs. I don't know what they're doing, honestly, but they're there. And Peter is hanging out with all these Gentile believers and the leaders at Antioch, and it's awesome. And Paul's there, and Peter's there, and they're having a great time until some brothers show up from Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand something. Peter has gone into a trance and had a vision and heard the Lord speak to him. What I've cleansed, you don't call common. And then Peter has had the guys from Cornelius' house who've had an angel show up at his door. And then Peter has gone to Cornelius' house, Cornelius' house, preached the gospel, and the glory of God falls. Everybody gets saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter has gone back to Jerusalem and explained what happened there. And then Peter, in Acts 15, had to give a second defense at Jerusalem. 
And now Peter is in Antioch. And when the Jewish brothers show up, Peter's fearful of what they're going to think about him because he's hanging out with Gentiles. And, and Paul, well, let's just pick up what Paul says about what happened. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, James is the pastor in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. That's why I think they might have been having a barbecue. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself, withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? The point Paul was saying is, your love is as fake as the unsaved Gentiles. So what are you trying to call these Gentiles into? But as I'm preparing this week, and I've got my message ready to go, I'm just stuck on this deal in Galatians 2. And I go, how in the world does Peter end up falling back into racist actions. Remember, he had the trance. He had the vision. He had the angel that came from Cornelius's. He went to Cornelius's. He preached the gospel. He had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then two different times, he makes a defense in Jerusalem. And now he's at Antioch, and he's enjoying those barbecue ribs. And when the leaders show up from Jerusalem, Peter falls back into, let's call it what it is, racial bias. And I just, I, I just, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Because, you know, we just kind of believe that if someone gets encountered by the Holy Spirit, these kind of things just break off them, don't they? They just, they just have an, a God encounter, and, and, and you don't, you're free, right? We just believe that. But you know what I'm realizing? You can't get delivered of your culture. You have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. You have to be intentional. Because when the brothers that came and brought Peter's familiar culture down to Antioch, all of a sudden, it wasn't him standing up in Jerusalem and saying, this is God, this is what God's doing. All of a sudden, there was peer pressure on Peter to not be hanging out with the Gentiles anymore. And in that moment, Peter, who his shadow healed the sick, y'all, raised the dead, preached. After Pentecost, thousands got born again. Peter fell back into prejudice and into bias. 
And just praying about it, I'm like, Lord, how is that possible? And here's what I've come to realize. Because Peter and Paul are in two different places. Now, culturally, they came from the same place. Isn't that right? Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee regarding the law. He was blameless. He was so passionate about the Jewish traditions. He was putting Christians to death. Right? And he says, but all that was gained to me, I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. And what Paul did internally was he changed in his Jewish culture for a Jesus culture. He he exchanged it. He realized, I am a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, he wasn't saying, I'm no longer a Jew, he was saying, there is a culture that's higher than my Jewish culture, and it's the culture of Christ. And he began to live from that place. And here's what Paul did intentionally. When he heard there was revival among the Gentiles in Antioch, he just moved in. And when he heard that something was happening in Corinth, he just moved in. And when he heard as he would go preach that churches were getting established from his preaching, he went back and visited every one of those towns in Asia Minor, and he lived with Gentiles regularly. Peter, he had the encounter, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He had all the evidence. He, he saw it with his own eyes. But Peter would go back to Israel. See, Peter only lived around his own folk. Now I'm talking. He only lived around his own culture. And Paul was intentional and lived in so many different cultures and different environments. He was over there enjoying the barbecue, and he wasn't afraid what anybody said about him. Am I making sense right now? And the difference is this. Paul understood that who he was as a subject of the kingdom of God superseded any natural culture. And from that place, he was intentional in relationship. And Peter instead lived inside his own comfort zone. So when it was a little bit awkward, he folded. What's interesting to me is this also, and I'll just throw this out there just as a point of, you know, study prayer. You check it out yourself. But Paul ended up being the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the, Paul called him the apostle to the, to the circumcision, to the Jews. But what's interesting is this, when you read the account, Peter's the one that had the encounter with the Lord to go to the Gentiles And Paul just got fed up with the the hard-hearted Jews and the Gentiles where they were receiving the word. Peter had the commission. Paul just made the choice. I was looking at that like, I don't, Paul, it seems to me that Paul stepped in where Peter stepped back. Let 
Am I making any sense right now? I'm, you know, I'm just presenting a few thoughts. Trying to figure this stuff out. I'll come back to that point of intentionality. Let me mention this, the book of Romans. You have to understand that the book of Romans, it is, I mean, it is the crowning jewel of the gospel presentation. You know, when you read the New Testament, the book of Romans gives us such clarity on the gospel and and, and what it is and, and what it does for us, how it changes us, what grace is, how we're all condemned under sin, but grace has appeared to deliver us from sin. The book of Romans, I mean, it is the shining star of gospel presentation in the New Testament. But what we don't really get is this, Paul had never been to Rome, and what Paul was actually addressing was a major cultural issue that was going on in Rome. He writes the book of Romans to deal with the cultural issue that's dividing the church in Rome, because at that time, here's what happened. The Jews had been expelled from Rome, and the church in Rome had been all Gentiles for the previous five years. And now the the law had changed because the Caesar had changed, and so now the Jews had been welcomed back to Rome. And so in all the house churches in Rome, now we've got Jews and Gentiles together, and they hadn't had that in in about almost a decade. And so we're the, now the, they're dealing with this issue of conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And so one of the key reasons that Paul is writing the book of Romans is to bring unity between the Jews and Gentiles. So what does he do? He writes a treatise on the gospel to bring everybody to the same foundation and calls everybody into unity around the cross of Christ. Paul's brilliant, brilliant. And so what you end up getting with this this letter to Rome is this fascinating exposition on the gospel that at the core of it is a racial reconciliation letter. It's powerful. And so when Paul is summarizing his thoughts in Romans 15 and 16, you really get the punchline of what Paul has done through the first 14 chapters. And so in chapter 15, Paul says this, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. It's powerful. See, if you read that with a Western mindset and don't understand the context, you think he's asking for like kumbaya or something. Can you guys just, you know, you know, be united and just like each other? That's what we think if we don't understand the context. No, he says, accept one another, Jews and Gentiles. Accept one another in the exact same way you would accept Jesus. Open your hearts to one another. Love one another. 
Pour yourself out for one another because it's in there that this thing actually lives. And Paul wasn't coming out of theory or philosophy. Paul was explaining how he lived. Because when you read like the book of Philippians and when you read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says, I have longed for you because he lived with them and they'd become dear. He goes, I've longed for you with the love of Christ. He goes, like, he goes, like a nursing mother, I care for you. And like a father, Thessalonians, I have longed to be with you. You see, Paul's manner was to open his heart wide and love deeply. And oh, beloved, if we can just get this, and if we'll love deeply, unbelievers will see a difference. They'll see it. They'll recognize Christ among us. I would tell you one of the key reasons why I think the church becomes a punchline to comedians' jokes instead of a power of God manifest in the society is because we don't love very well. But oh, if we could just love, if we could just care, if we could just hurt when someone else is hurting, if we could just rejoice when someone else is rejoicing. You know, you know what I'm saying? If we could just see everyone as intrinsically valuable. Old and young, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, if we could see everybody as valuable, just like God does, then we can love the way Jesus has loved us. This is what the New Testament calls us to in the gospel. You see, the gospel is not merely a vertical reconciliation. It's a horizontal reconciliation at the same time. We've been reconciled to God, and in Christ, we are reconciled to one another. You're actually part of each other. What a shocking mystery this is that you and I are somehow a part of one another in Christ. We're part of each other. It is absolutely false that the church should be separated in any way. Why? Because we're united in the bond of the Spirit. And you just tell me, is the Holy Spirit ever divided? Never. It's what Paul was going after in Rome. So he admonishes them to be one. And then he comes back and he says in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 17, listen to this. Paul gets a little gangster sometimes. Have you ever noticed that? He just, I mean, he gets kind of a bad rap for being like kind of hard. He's real tender when you read his words, but man, sometimes he's like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, he just, Romans 16, listen to this. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to, the, contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. <laughs> Is that what the Bible says? I urge you, keep an eye on those that cause dissensions 
and hindrances, contrary to the teachings you've learned, turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Whoa! What's he talking about? He's talking about what he had to deal with in Galatia. It was a bunch of Jewish believers who were commanding the Gentiles to follow the law of Moses. He actually says in, in, in Galatia, in the letter to Galatia, he says, I, those that are commanding you that you have to have circumcision for salvation, he goes, I wish they would be cut off themselves. Paul? And let's just be honest, it's the word of God. I mean, Jesus? <laughs> Saying it like that in the Bible, I'm like, Whoa. But the point is, God is serious about us stepping into our oneness because in our oneness, we can manifest the kingdom of God. See, one accord got on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but those guys that got that outpouring in Acts 2, they had a ton of stuff to work through. The New Testament brings us and pushes us towards oneness, and when we're one in Christ, we're a habitation and a dwelling place for God and the Spirit. Come on now. And so this is where we've got to go with this. We have to recognize that there is a required intentionality if we're going to walk out the gospel. And I want to be super, super clear to you. The issue of cultural unity and oneness, like what Jesus prayed for in John 17, it's not a side issue to the gospel. It's inherent to the gospel. It, it's, it's, it's central to the gospel. Our reconciliation to God and our reconciliation to one another is what enables us to love and enables us to be one. So this isn't a side thing. This isn't a social thing. This isn't a political thing. I remember years ago when, when we first started, I mean, I, I've been on this journey for 25 years talking about racial unity, racial reconciliation. And I remember when we first started talking about racial unity, there were some voices and they said, so you guys are getting political now, huh? No. We're not getting political. We're actually trying to love. We're actually trying to follow the Bible. We're actually trying to walk out the, the words on the page. Politics will never bring oneness. I'll just say that again. Politics will never bring oneness. Politics, what they do is they pit one group against another. They always vilify the them, and then they always exalt the us. Whoever it is, whichever party. So the bad them and the good us, and you've got to decide who are you. That's politics. Jesus says, everybody can come. You just have to die. Put on me, and you'll be one in me. And so this is where we have to go with this thing. We have to go to a place of unity that breeds oneness and we've got to be intentional to get there. So let me just break this down for the, the next 10 minutes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. I want to talk about the nature of unity. Let's just be really clear for a moment. Let's talk about the nature of unity and what oneness looks like. Listen, unity is not uniformity. 
It's not conformity. It's not integration. It's not assimilation. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Let me break it down for people that don't know what I'm saying. It's not about having a certain culture in leadership and the other cultures that come have to act like that culture so that they can fit in. That's not unity. That's called assimilation. What unity is, is when every culture brings its unique graces and gifts and operates in the fullness of them together. And so unity is beautiful harmony. Because in harmony, everybody's not singing the same note, right? That's called unison. We don't want unison. We want harmonious beauty. So unity... requires diverse parts to come together in a way that actually enriches each other. The differences actually complement one another, and it makes the whole much more valuable. That's what we're talking about. The sum ends up better than any of the parts. This is what the body of Christ has in its destiny to be a glorious expression of unity in diversity. Unity only comes in this way, yes, by the grace of God, yes, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, yes, by the power of the gospel, and as a product of relationship. It only comes that way. Because what we see with Peter and Paul is someone who had all those first things that I named, Peter, but he didn't have the relationships. And then we look at Paul, and he was extremely intentional, had the relationships, and the expression of his life was completely different. It's a product of relationships, not simply revelation. In other words, listen, just be very, just pay attention to what I'm saying. I can stand here and preach a message to you on unity. You can amen and interrupt me with applause, but, and the revelation can hit your mind and your heart, but if it doesn't actually turn into actions, unity will not be ours. We will be a group of people from different cultures who sit next to somebody maybe from a different culture on Sundays, and we never do life together. And in that, there is no love that compels the world to see that Jesus is real. But if we will have revelation hit us and then turn that into actions and intentionality across cultures, we will find ourselves in an interchange of love that will compel others to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit alone does not create unity. It comes from intentionally seeking others out. It doesn't happen inevitably. The truth is, disunity happens inevitably. If we're not intentional, we'll actually go back to what we're used to. We'll find ourselves in our little pockets that we enjoy, that that don't bring us any challenge. And let's just be honest. When you're trying to be intentional about relationship across cultures, It's awkward. It is awkward. 
people don't know what to say, and then they're scared to not say, to say the thing wrong, and, and then because they think they said something wrong, then they quit talking, then they're just staring at each other, drinking their coffee. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. That's fine. Praise God. Glory to God. Praise God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. <laughs> glory to God. Glory to God. <laughs> and so because we're awkward and we're a little fearful, we don't risk. And because we don't love very well, when somebody steps in it, we get mad. When we all of a sudden, need our rights, and I don't deserve, and you can't talk like that to me. I didn't know I talked like that. Well, you did. Well, I didn't know. Well, Facebook, boom. And it's, it just it can't be like that with us. Listen, I don't know what they do out there, but it can't be like that in here. It can't. It cannot. It can't. We have to have grace. Listen, the Lord spoke to me about a year and a half ago, and he said, you have to get healing if you're going to get reconciliation. And you've got to get reconciliation if you're going to ever get unity. And if you ever want real justice, you have to have unity in place so you can move towards justice. And the thing about healing is repentance is required. And that's what Jeff and I have been trying to express the last few weeks is that we understand as those in the dominant culture, as those in the majority culture, as white men, that a lot of our brothers and sisters of color have experienced racial things. I've heard so many stories that just like, it's just painful and so we say, you know, we, we recognize that and we repent of that and we don't want to live like that or reproduce that in our day or in our children. Amen. And that's who we're going to be and that's how we're going to live. And so that's the, that's the most painful piece, right? But the hardest piece is actually the next piece. It's the reconciliation See, if we get healing, then we can move towards reconciliation. But you know what reconciliation requires? Relationship. And you know what relationship requires? Time and grace and willingness when people say it wrong and act funny to actually move through that together. I was in a pastor's meeting. Oh, this is a good one. I was, <laughs> I was in a pastor's meeting white pastors, black pastors, we're talking about racial unity. And one of the pastors was really precise and clear and just unpacking, He's, he was an African-American pastor, just unpacking detail of what his experiences were and giving uh, 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 some insight into how uh, some African-Americans experience different things from people in the white culture. And then one of the white pastors chimed in, and he was, trying to, he was trying to say, man, you said that so well. You said that so clear. And he, instead, he said, wow, you know, you're really articulate. And, and see, there's a bunch of folk like, oh, dear Jesus. And there's a bunch of folk like, 
oh, what's wrong with that? But when he said that, I went, oh, because it was like an hour and a half of awesome, and it just went like, boom, like just to the bottom. I was like, oh, no. And I was like, here we go. Like it's, I was like, the gloves are about to come off. Because you can't, okay, let me tell you why that's a problem. (laughs) This pastor's got degrees and, I mean, top of his class and lots of letters after his name. And why would it be a thing that he would be surprisingly articulate just because he's black? You see? And so that is like a bit of a word that seems to speak of a condescension, right? And so I, I, was, I, I, I was in there, I was just like, whoa, what just, what just happened? Oh no, oh no. And, uh, and the African-American pastor, I'll just never forget this, he reached over, he put his arm on us, he goes, now brother, I went, oh, here we go. He goes, I want to help you out. I went, oh, praise God. (laughs) He said, don't ever tell a black man that he's articulate because why shouldn't I be? He just said it calm. He just said it in peace. He said it in peace. You know, correction is sown in peace by those who make peace. And he just said it in peace. He goes, why shouldn't I be? And he said, I know you probably didn't mean it like what? Like in some kind of negative way, but you have to know that, that that's not a that's not gonna be taken well by by other men maybe that are my hue. And uh, and the white pastor goes, Oh man, I am so sorry. I th-, he goes, Thank you for saying that and helping me to understand. And what looked like in that moment was gonna be just some sort of, you know, nuclear bomb going off turned into a productive moment of reconciliation. And see, that's why, that's why it's hard. Because it requires grace. It requires love. It requires patience. It requires forgiveness. It just requires us to do what John 13, 35 says. Just love one another the way Jesus has loved us. Do you think Jesus has overlooked some of your mess-ups, see? We have to have that same intentionality with one another and be able to talk through hard things. If you ever want reconciliation, it has to go there. And that's how we get unity. See, here's what happens. When you go through that kind of a process with people, deep friendships are formed. Real deep, I mean, rich friendships are formed. And I don't know about you, but I don't do very well with surface. I don't do very well with the little, hi, hi, how are you, blessed, how are you, blessed, praise God, glory, and just leave. That's just not me. I just, I just not how I am. I just, I don't do well with that. If I can't talk to you about real stuff, then you and I are probably not going to be that close. It's just how it is. And that's what's just real about life and love and relationships is that you've got to get down into each other's hearts and know what makes other people tick. And when real relationships are formed, that's when divine ideas come. It's when the spirit of revelation comes and we share with one another. I was on the phone uh, this morning with a pastor friend from uh, 
across the nation this morning. We were talking about these issues of reconciliation. He's black, and we were just sharing certain things, and every time I talked to him, he and I just sharpen one another, and that's what the Bible talks about, where iron sharpens iron, where the man's face sharpens the man. Like, it's just getting that deep richness in relationship and sharing from that well with one another. You can't get there going shallow. You gotta go deep. And that's where we love. And that's where we will protect one another. And that's where we'll fight for each other. See, we we can't only agree that we're brothers and sisters legally in the gospel. We're supposed to walk out the actuality of it. Am I making sense? Man, somebody fast-forwarded the clock. I can't believe that. All right, last, last bit. I'm going to give you four steps to intentionality. I'm going to do this very quickly. First, we have to acknowledge. And I think we're there. I think in our spiritual family, we're acknowledging that there is still an issue and a racial divide in our nation. There's still a legitimate problem, but we're not going to be a part of the problem any longer. We're going to be a part of the answer. Amen. We're actually going to step in. We're going to pray. We're going to fast, but we're going to be intentional in love. And and though prejudice and and racism still impacts our society and still impacts many of us right here, uh, in, in our spiritual family, we are going to stand against that by the power of the blood of Jesus. Amen. So we have to acknowledge it, recognize it. And here's the thing is when you acknowledge you have to also acknowledge that the problem is probably not just out there somewhere, it's probably right in here somewhere. Come on. There's not, I don't know that person who's completely free of bias and prejudice. If that's you, you just come pray for me afterwards. And don't come pray for me afterwards because you're not in here. So we all struggle with people that are not like how we are. And we have to come out of that and come into love and relationship and find each other and learn from one another and grow. So we acknowledge. Second, we have to understand. We have to understand what others have gone through. You see, the narratives that are in the news media, they don't tell me about your heart. They don't tell me about your heart. All those narratives are out there because what they're trying to do is keep your viewership. And they found that the best way that they can do that is by making you mad. I talked to, I talked to a brother uh, Friday night, and he told me, I said, he said, man, it's so great to come to the end of this fast. And I said, glory to God, it's so great come to the end of this fast. I had some glorious soup on Friday. I thought, I had, it was a spiritual experience. I, I was having visions and encounters. But uh, he, he said, he goes, you know what, I fasted? I said, what? He said, I fasted news. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I, fa- I, didn't, I didn't listen to any news for 40 days. I go, I bet that cleared your mind. He goes, I'm way happier I go, really? He goes, I, he goes, I'm not mad at all anymore. I go, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, and he's, he's an African-American man. He said, yeah, I just realized that what they've been doing to me is just trying to make me mad. So I'll keep coming back and getting madder and madder. And just, he goes, walking away from it, he goes, 
My heart feels free. Can you imagine? Yeah, I can imagine because that's what it's geared to do. And so those narratives are geared to separate us. They're not geared to bring us together. They're geared to sway our opinions and and take control of our emotions. And, And here's the deal. There's many voices out there speaking, but most of them are not speaking truth. And they're definitely not speaking oneness in Christ. And so we need, to, we need to understand but recognize the narratives are often not what we need to hear. What we actually need to hear is what others that we know and their experiences are. You see, because most of the time we're going to view everything from our own cultural lens, but I can't find out about you from my cultural lens. I can only find out about you from you. You know, if you're not like me, I can only find out what you're like because of your experience, and you can find out what I'm like from my experience, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Each person has a story. Each story is important, and you can't know somebody unless you know their story. Come on. We acknowledge, we understand, and then we empathize. We step alongside another person in the emotions that they feel, and we feel those emotions with them. That's what empathy is. We mourn with those who mourn. We mourn over injustice. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we love like believers. We love like Jesus. And if you're a person who suffered injustice, empathy toward the other culture, it looks like mercy. And if you're a person who has never really suffered injustice, empathy looks like compassion. Gotta tell this quick story. My wife and I have a spiritual daughter. Her name is Olivia Gonzalez. In fact, Jeff and Amy are at Rolando and Olivia's church this morning. They're preaching on their fifth year anniversary, Reveal Church. We love them. Well, Olivia lived with my my wife and I for three and a half years. She's African-American. And I remember one time we were at this gathering at this Christmas party, and uh, we were eating these nuts out of this bowl. And uh, this woman, this older generation white woman, she said, you know what we used to call these? We used to call these entos. And she said it with me and Olivia just right there. She said the N-word, and I went, and I looked, and I looked at Olivia, and I, and I was about to say something, like, uh-uh, and she goes, she waved me off, and I looked at her, and then the lady realized what she did. She went, oh, 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 and she walked away, and I looked at her. I said, what do I do? What do you want me to do? I'm so sorry, she, and she just looked at me, and she just goes, she doesn't understand. She doesn't know. She goes, you don't get mad, you don't get angry with ignorance. And she just expressed mercy. And I just, I just learned so much from her. You know, in, in the Second Corinthians 5 passage, where it says that God was in Christ not imputing our trespasses, that's the heart of a reconciler. You don't hold people guilty for the sin you release in mercy. I learned that from Olivia when she was 18 years old. And I could tell you her stories of injustice after injustice after injustice. I was shocked to watch her be an expression of Christ as a brand new believer. We acknowledge, we understand, we empathize, and then we act. Because love, yeah, you're doing it. Good job. Love 
is not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Hear me. You can't say, I love God, but you don't love your brother. That's not real. Love is not only some some vertical thing. It has a horizontal outflow. If the love is just you and Jesus and it never touches anyone else, that's not love. That's fake. We don't love in word only. We love in deed and in truth. What if I came home from from ministry every single day and I looked at my wife and said, I love you so much. Bye. She'd be like, what? I just told you I loved you. I say it every day. I say it when I leave and when I show back up. She got, she'd be like, I need a little more loving than that. I need a little more interaction. I need some deeds and in truth. My wife's uh, love language is uh, acts of service. And so she needs a little more action in the love. You know what I'm saying? And so... If we just say that we love, but we don't actually walk it out, that's not real, beloved. We gotta be intentional to engage in relationships. We don't simply tolerate people of other cultures or ignore them. Hello? We seek to understand. We listen to people's stories. And where there is opportunity, we overcome evil with good. I love Romans 12, 21. It says, overcome evil with good. That's the heart of reconciliation. Where evil has been done in our nation, what do we do? We go right at it, and we overcome evil with good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Amen. Let's stand. Don't go anywhere. We're going to take up an offering. You're going to give big. It's going to be awesome. I just, I just want us to commit ourselves to love with actions. Amen? To love in deeds. To love across cultures. Let's just, uh, let's just close our eyes and put our hands on our heart for a moment. Lord, right now, we recognize that we can't just agree with the words of unity and oneness and reconciliation. We have to walk these out. And Lord, we need grace, and we recognize it's awkward and it's difficult sometimes, and we don't even know how to do this well. We're just honest. But I'm asking you right now to enable us by the grace of God to step into reconciliation activity by love. Lord, where we've had prejudice and bias and stereotype and all sorts of things that separate in our minds, Right now, identify those things to us. Show us where we can turn from those things and turn towards you. Lord, help us to love. Father, I pray for our spiritual family specifically that we would build relationships, deep, rich relationships, heart-to-heart understanding hearing one another's stories, sharing from the heart. God, do it in us. Do it in us.